You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast. I'm Kirsten Lopez, and in this episode, I'm attending the TAG 2017 conference in Toronto, Canada, hosted by the University of Toronto. So like me, if you hadn't heard of TAG until recently, TAG is a infamous or somewhat infamous uh, conference in Europe or in the UK that they decided about 10 years ago to start a North American version. So TAG stands for the Theoretical Archaeological Group Conference. Uh, Chelsea Slotin and I had decided, or were invited rather, to co-author a paper for this conference. And I had presented on Saturday in a session called Pop Goes the Pot, Archaeology and Representations of the Past in Different Media Genres. Our session was great and actually came together quite unexpectedly in a way we all hope that sessions do. The day before I presented, several of us ended the evening at a local bar where Lynn Goldstein, April Bisaw, and I discussed the conference as we think of it so far. Take a listen. I, this notion of the other the other notion that I got from the plenary session that I thought was interesting is this I, it's you know it's like ideas tend to go around to every discipline and everybody has to incorporate so now we're all incorporating slow you know yeah. so slow food slow archaeology slow, slow cinema <laughs> slow cinema I thought that slow. was a really interesting one too because I, I you see this in Portland being a very foodie town you see a lot of that slow food movement this is really and all of these Norwegian films we're all watching of hours of nothing oh my god <laughs> yeah that just get a bird cage. I mean, <laughs> well, one of the slow things was to watch a TV channel where you yes. watch birds. Right. But you don't have to clean up after them. Yes, so that is true. It's, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I get the, and I can appreciate the concept. Oh, I think it's, a, it seems a little trendy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think it's bad. There's nothing wrong with that. But was, and I think you do appreciate things in a different way. That I do agree with. Yeah. But, do we all have to go slow? <laughs> but was there ever really a fast archaeology? I don't know. The standard critique is that it's slow and tedious. That's so right. if we get even slower, <laughs> where are we going? Well, I mean, I think part of her point was that um, it's not just that it's slow, it's that even if it's slow, people would rather watch you do that than listen to you talk about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because we're all very boring. Yeah. <laughs> I think watching us do what we do is probably much more boring. I think so too. Unless every now and then we scream Eureka. <laughs> like, that's like a hook to make it that there's a point. Like, you know, baseball's on TV right now and I love going to baseball games and I can't get anybody younger than me 
to go to a baseball really? game because they think it's just so slow and boring. Find so, Norwegians. Yeah, I need, to, <laughs> I need to find Norwegians in the Hudson Valley of New York. If you're out there, give me a call. <laughs> well, it's like, I mean, I can get it if you've only seen baseball on TV. Because, yes, it's boring on TV. But I've gone to baseball games, and it's much more fun in person. Yes, it is. So there's a lot of that. Uh, it's just this idea that or whatever whatever the new thing is, it means we're doing everything wrong. Yeah. And we have to fix it. And I just don't buy that. Yeah. Um, I think it's good to have new perspectives and think about things in a new way and change even the way we analyze things but and do new things. But I don't think it means that you start from scratch again. Yeah. Well, or that everything you did in the past is bad. Yeah. And I can't remember the author, but I remember recently reading a paper that was going over a, a critique of the post-processualism and the way that they critiqued and uh, processualists and the way that processualists critiqued exactly. the, you know, culture historians. It's, it's this, like you're saying, just this <laughs> weird cycle that's for whatever reason, every generation felt this need to like that's right trash the previous and throw it out, but it's like you couldn't get there. You, you couldn't get there without it. it. Exactly, yeah. that's my point. Although I will say this: uh, when I was starting to do work on my dissertation, and Lewis Binford was visiting where I was working, and he said to me, he said, "If you want to be accepted, if you want people to say." Oh yeah, what she's doing is good. He said, you have to know all of those typologies and you have to know all of that stuff. And you gotta know it cold because if you don't, you will have no credibility. Because you gotta know where you're coming from. And I think that's good advice, but people don't do that anymore. Depends on what side of the country you're <laughs> And what time period you're looking at. There's yeah. nothing yeah. in historical archeology span once you're outside the colonial period. <laughs> That is a typology that you need to right. know. You know, once you're out of the pearlware, whiteware, creamware, it's all the same stuff. So there isn't yeah, there true. isn't that kind of basic entry level exam that you have to pass to be able to do anything. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of out west. I still see a lot of that. That kind of work. Yeah, very strong in the typology. And I was talking to someone earlier, and I don't remember if it was you or what other person I was talking to. <laughs> but um, just the base, and it's, it is important to have a base and to, to reference you know, theory with actual evidence. And that's you have to have the supporting evidence for any theoretical debate or point. But with so few, and this is sort of that juxtaposition between historic and like early prehistoric stuff, is you have so little to work with, and it's really hard to go into deep theory on various things. Or you can go in totally into deep theory because you don't have data. Exactly. <laughs> and you can't get back out. You're yeah. just stuck in deep theory, trying to make it relevant to the site that you're talking about yes. or the culture you're talking about. So that's where... Yeah, it's important to have those links with the people of the region in order to help ground your theoretical bent if you don't have a lot of the, the physicality or the material. I think it's true that once you're out of graduate school, conferences like this are, are kind of fun because you don't really sit around and talk theory all the time. Yeah. So even if you don't agree with it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. 
it's kind of just fun to see what other people are thinking. Yeah, and, and how people have changed what they're thinking. And, yeah. So that, that part is okay. Yeah. Or even seeing how it resembles earlier thoughts that they may not have actually read. Yeah. But what else have you, so that was the, the plenary, a little bit on that. And just before we were recording, uh, when you were talking about the death bit. Well, uh, that, part, was, that was partly from the, the, um, the theory, the uh, plenary. Yeah. But this afternoon, well, you were in that session also, yes, this uh, afternoon? Not on, all of it. Oh. I'm, I'm all right, so this was a session on, on uh, post-humanism? Yeah, but what is it? It's uh, fate, not phasic, like post-humanism. Um, it's uh, doing something to post-humanism. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm it. Parsing, 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 posthumanism, and you know, I, it, it's interesting because if you, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a new old literature. I mean, some of it's new, some of it's not, but um, it's this idea that. Um, you know, we have to move on to, to some new way of, of thinking, which is, I mean, and some of it I really like because it moves away from the dichotomy, uh, uh, this sort of dichotomous approach. And that part I think is very good. Um, but I think that, and some of the papers I thought were really especially interesting. Um, some of them I think were a little more tedious, but um, but uh, they were, um, but it's sort of trying to take a different, all different kinds of, what I liked about the session was taking all different kinds of data and trying to take all these different kinds of data and put it in this post-humanist frame. Yeah. And, which is different. Um, it's certainly different than Marxist. It's certainly different than processual or post-processual, um, but it's it's not horrifically different. And um, and then, you know, I, I can't say, I mean, I've read most of these people, but I haven't read them so closely that I can opine on the difference between person A and person B. <laughs> yeah. that, I, I, that I really can't do. But the, uh, but the kind of work they were doing, I thought was really pretty interesting. Like the, the foodways one, I thought was really interesting as well. It just really, you know, what the food represents and how it's conveying meaning. And it, it was really quite fascinating. And also then this notion of counter-monumentality. I'm not sure. I mean, I thought that was an interesting paper, but I, I don't know if it worked quite as uh, beautifully as he was presenting it. I mean, he had a site that has earthworks, and clearly the earthworks are not ginormous earthworks. But yet, so the question is, is, is this a monument if it's not something you can see very easily? And so... And and so the question was like why was it there and what was it doing and why would you know can we even call it a monument and you know what I wouldn't have called it a monument yeah, yeah. it's an earthquake <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's what I would have called it 
Yeah. Monuments are by definition something special yeah. and something different. So if there's nothing else on the landscape except for these things. And they are not... interesting and they are special and they are different. And clearly they're doing you know, uh, they're doing something to put all this effort into creating. And and it also is clear they're taking advantage on one side of the natural slope of the land and drop to the river and things like that. But, you know, I wonder sometimes about that stuff if you can make quite a mark on the landscape and you could have put it there for the stupidest reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, we do that all the time. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It could be there for like a totally... <laughs> you know, party or something. Yeah, the edges of a bar open. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was uh, in the settler colonialism session. Vanessa Watts said something. I'm trying to find in my notes. Um, if I remember it correctly, the way she said it is that we basically do what the earth wants us to do, and. I don't know if that could be an extension of that. You know, if there's already some sort of ridge in the area and that you build it up, you Take reinforce it, right. you exaggerate it, mm-hmm. that that's that sort of, I think what she was trying to say, the communication between the land and the people that isn't something that we generally think or talk about. Um, well, I know we always talk at Astaland where we've got this slope and, one of the mounds, the platform mound, is actually takes advantage of the slope. Well, that just seems like it makes good sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Why build that whole thing if you don't have to? Yeah. It's like you wouldn't create a rock shelter where there wasn't already right, a rock right, shelter. Right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we need shelter from the rain. Here is a nice natural one. No, let's yes. build something else. Yes. Yeah, but just the the description of the parsing post-humanism in the first two sentences are relatively impenetrable yes. to somebody who is not already versed yes. in this literature. Um, so it's not exactly welcoming. No, it was not. Well, I don't think it's supposed to be. <laughs> right, it was not necessarily intended to instruct. No. So when there's this new idea that comes out and you're already assumed to be well-versed and using it and knowledgeable about it, and then you sit in 15-minute papers and you hear about how somebody is using it, if you don't get that introduction somewhere, yeah. there's a limited utility to that. But it does like make a certain group of people seem cool and hip and on the cutting edge and the other people not. So it's one of the reasons I avoid sessions that are that long when there's like <laughs> 15 people in a session that are all going to be talking about something new, cool and hip. I know there's like all these other sessions that are going to be under attended yes. that yeah. are doing things that I could wrap my head around quickly, that I can make contributions to exactly. by talking to the speakers. So I was in the historical trauma session and that uh, that sounds really oh I think I think this was you know this was interesting but um, you know it I don't know how new and different it is yeah yeah I came in so as I mentioned before I definitely missed a good chunk of most of the day (laughs) Um, due to both prior engagements and my the fact that I really hadn't analyzed the uh, the schedule very much um, since it ended fairly early in the day, but this was one that I'm like, oh, post-humanism. Sorry, post-humanism. This is definitely something that's intriguing. I haven't quite wrapped my brain around it. And there's a whole. The first session is a, a 
the first talk in the session is uh, introduction. Right. So that was kind of a, a nice idea of being able to, to pull people in, but you had to be there for that yes. first one. Because otherwise, like I came in at the end and I'm realizing I am so in over my head <laughs> on this theory. I'm like, well, if I understood the words that we were saying, that yeah. might be really fascinating, but so well, far... And I was, I was thinking, oh my goodness, maybe I should have assigned more of these things in my class. <laughs> yeah. Well, two years ago when I went to TAG, the hip session was, the future is over. And, you know, that's not represented anywhere on here. So two years from now, the next TAG, we might be post-post-human already. <laughs> so, I mean, if the future is already over, why would we think that we the post-post-human wouldn't be over as well? Yeah. So I think we, we have to be concerned as professors as well to not jump on the bandwagon and then train a bunch of people on whatever's cool and hip and they don't have that grounding of the exactly. things that stand the test of time. Yeah. That, you know, this might have utility for certain ways of reconceiving things, but I don't think it's in any way you should cut something out of your syllabus to include it's it okay. in. okay. Yeah. I wasn't planning to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking, actually, I, I was thinking that it would be very helpful on some of the literature to really encourage current PhD students who are writing their dissertations to sort of expand themselves a bit and look at some of this literature to yeah. see if it's helpful to the kinds of analyses they're doing. Because, I mean, that's really the bottom line. I mean, the theory can be beautiful, but if it doesn't apply to anything you're working on, yeah. it's not useful. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. My dissertation had a lot of the archaeology of memory in it, and now that's just become kind of a standard thing right. that nobody highlights it in their titles or in their talks. And several talks were just, oh, collective memory. But 10 years ago, right. people were like, what, what are you talking How is collective memory yeah. translated and, and transformed? So some things to, you want to be right. in the current dialogue. But you exactly. don't want to try to be ahead of the dialogue right. if you're doing something like a dissertation. Yes, or too far in. So yeah, that, you don't want to be too committed to it. Yeah, because you want to be able to demonstrate that you can be flexible and that you can you are grounded in the grounded the stuff that like, you're saying, stands the test of time. I'm just lucky that it stood the test of yes. time for, for my decision. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time. It worked out well. So in the... The trauma history. How was that session? Uh, it was. There were three papers that were very, very different from each other. Um, one was very almost accidental in how it came about as she presented it. It was a um, 
a woman who had been living in uh, northern Italy. Uh, my understanding is it was like a teacher exchange that she was like teaching there for a short period of time. And this 80 something year old woman just befriended her and decided to tell her stories of the trauma that happened to her and her friends when they were very young. Um, these massacres that happened in the area of um, Italy that was on the border of, with Slovenia. And then this became the anthropologist's dissertation was this kind of accidental encounter that she started to investigate further and further. So there was very much, it was so much more personal yeah, yeah. Um, than most projects are. And I think at some level we want to be distanced. Right. Um, and it gets into the whole, are you studying yourself, yourself sort right, of thing. Right. Um, but that, you know, I started out the day in the settler colonialism session with a several indigenous archaeologists so it's hard to to critique the one and, and celebrate the other um, but she was talking about witness trees and that this woman um, showed her essentially family portraits and in the photo albums were portraits of trees and these were the tree in the town that is the witness tree and that when this massacre happened they cut down the witness trees because the trees had witnessed too much so it was very, very poetic, um, but I'm not sure how it applies in a general sense to anything that's separate. But witness trees are a specific thing. But we generally don't think of them, we think of them that they stood the test of time, but not that they were a sacred spot that the town would take photos of and Well, if it's about. the kind of witness tree where it's the, where it's like this, where the tree is It actually, wasn't intentionally okay. distorted, or if it was, the only thing she talked about that was intentional is that some of them had dates carved onto okay, them. Okay, because usually when somebody it. talks about a witness tree, mm -hmm. it's the one of the distorted ones with the, where it goes out like that. Yeah. And those witness trees are all over the place, but... But those tend to be very different than what she's talking about. Yeah, and, and again, I didn't have much context other than her 15-minute presentation. Right. Um, and then one of the, another graduate student was presenting his work at an occupied prison, speaking to the inmates of the prison about how they felt locked in and locked down, but that the prison itself was moving. So oh, you've talked about yeah. that. very, very kind of different thing as well. So the, the more traditional one was the um, looking at what Native Americans in Alabama were doing with trade beads that they would find while walking the fields and <laughs> turning them into things. That's pretty bad when that is and the, that is the normal. that it was the standard one. But the one person didn't show up, which is uh, John Sable, who does the seances at archaeology sites. So uh, it, uh, it could have gotten a little, uh, a little differently. <laughs> which, you know, I've been looking forward to hearing him talk at some point. I know he always goes to tag at the tag two years ago in, in NYU. He had three different papers that he submitted for it. And, you know, I do ghost hunting in my work, but in a, a metaphorical way. And he does it in a Real literal way. way that he wants archaeologists to collect the stories of the spirits right. from the spirits, right. which is a very different thing. So yeah. I was a little disappointed that I wasn't going to actually get to see and hear um, from him. But yeah, I, and I think those two, the historical trauma and the settler colonialism, kind of went together yeah. in, in an interesting way. But they, they were all very personal and very unique, so it's hard to take that work and go home and apply it to what yeah. you're doing.
Yeah, that's, I think, some of, I don't know, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. That's for sure. Because you're speaking. Yes, I am. (laughs) And we know that will be excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And Lynn will be speaking as well, so that will be excellent. So so that means Saturday is going to be the best day, right? Well, I don't know what's in the morning. You're not in the morning, though, right? No, no. And that's where, we'll see. Let's see. I don't have a whole lot. Oh, there's this one looks really interesting. So there's a session here listed. A thing more a thing a First Nations elder and an archaeologist walk into a museum. I think it's time to make some changes around here. Reevaluating perceptions of material culture. So it's got a fun title. Uh, very long. <laughs> very long. Very, very long. And something that people have talked about a lot. Yes. yes. Yeah. So the the opening talk is uh, experiences and traditions, artifact interpretation through the perspective of an indigenous elder. So that kind of sets the stage quite a bit for the rest of it, um, which is something that was very thematic, I think, um, perspective at the SAA this year too. So it's it's good to see some of a little bit of continuity between the different conferences. Right. Um, and then I have one marked, that is the last paper here is Things, Us, and Them, Affiliative Curation of the Archaeological Record in the Digital Continuum. So that, I think, should be interesting. Um, I did uh, some work uh, doing some digital curation uh, a number of years ago, and I find the choosing and the process of which artifacts are chosen and how to filter through access and what can and can't be shown especially for things that were obtained historically um, or you know you have to parse out any nagpra items because generally it's collections that are in for digital uh, creation are those that are not in the general rotation right of the, the exhibit hall so it, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. That's where I'm, I'm going to be in the Archaeology as Resistance session. Yes. Very short title. And now what? Archaeology as Resistance. That's me to the point. I don't need a lot of song and dance. <laughs> I don't need a two-line long title there. Yes. It'll be a good one. I think that one I have two marked on oh. as well. Um, but, of course, we did an episode on this uh, in January, one or two, I think, episodes on uh, on Trump. But so there's a, a paper here from Trump to trigger warnings, teaching an engaged archaeology in times of trouble, and that should be kind of fascinating. I hope. <laughs> That's after a bodies at contact zone, so I think more dead bodies is, will be will be talked about. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of it's a, a small, fairly intimate conference. Yes. It's new to me, so it's a pretty good experience. There is a session tomorrow on water, but it's none of it is North American water. Right. So. Oh yeah. I noticed that. Um, I'm just a diehard North Americanist. Like, I'll go to things that are general and can be applied, but I just, I don't have the cultural knowledge to really deeply understand when you're talking about Crete or when you're, you know, all these other places. I can't know everything, so I stick to what I can know very well. I would pretty much agree. And then the last... 
Well, it's not the last session listed. No. No. Nope. I think so the one I'm in is the last one. <laughs> you're at... That's it. Dead in yeah, the yeah. Right there. <laughs> right before the individual abstracts. I am the last thing in the last session. Yes. So the dead and the living, where is archaeological theory today? Yes. Can you tell us where it is? Well, it's interesting because obviously they're not really talking about where, you know, identifying where it is today in that sense. But there are three different categories of papers in it. One paper is, is generally on bioarchaeology and, and uh, uh, mortuary stuff. Another set of papers is on using ethnographic uh, materials, either doing ethnography or somehow using ethnographic and that materials. And then the third set of papers um, is on forensic anthropology, but forensic archaeology. Yes. Not forensic anthropology. Forensic archaeology, and that's not something you think of as theoretical. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, very... that's, so that's very interesting. It's a very different way of looking at it. But Zoe Crossland does a lot of that. Right. And, and the other paper that's in that part also does, um, and, but does it differently. So it, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's an interesting contrast. The thing is, is if they... If they were, if they're successful in sort of the kinds of points they want to make, and it is applied more broadly to forensic anthropology, they're going to have a problem because those people won't be able to testify in court. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's the challenge. Yeah. yeah, there's a specific application. It's almost like a technical it is. field. It is. And you have to know the standard methods and do it the same, same way. way. That's right. Otherwise, you're, nobody's ever going to want to use you. And if you're going to do something new, it's got to be, you it's know, it's be tested. tested and yes, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so, so to question some of the basics of it and say it needs these additional theoretical underpinnings, to me, intellectually, that's really interesting. But practically speaking, I wonder if anybody's going to pay attention to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we'll make everybody put it in their dissertation and then yeah. not do it once they do a real, actual forensic case. I mean, and, and some of the points they raise are, are totally spot on. I mean, I don't disagree with anything they're saying. It's just that the nature of forensic anthropology is such that they can't afford to do that. So it's, it's an interesting problem. I mean, one of the issue, one of the examples she brings up is... Um, uh, Zoe Crossland brings up is how now, suddenly now fingerprints are not right. the be all end all that everybody uh, thought they were, huh. and and that's it's a great example. Yeah, um, and it's not that fingerprints themselves are so bad; it's that we generally don't have complete fingerprints. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and how many matches is good, and you know, and all of that sort of stuff. And so the same sort of way. Um, the, in, in the other paper, in that forensic section, um, he, he cites, the author cites um, testimony from an archaeologist about whether or not these graves were the result of, uh, of a, uh, you know, a traumatic event or whether it could just be something else. And it was, was interesting to me is that he, the person testifying, couldn't 
really adequately answer it because he had not done enough work on that specific society. Right. He went in and did what he does. Yeah. But he didn't know enough to be able to answer in detail a lot of the questions. So it's kind of, it's intriguing. I mean, it's an interesting problem. Theoretically, it's interesting. <coughs> Intellectually, it's inter- interesting. Whether anybody will follow through on it, I don't know. It'll make a lovely edited volume yes. that will cost $200. Um, <laughs> and, and I, they're interesting questions. Yeah. yeah. And, and it raises for me one of the things that makes me crazy that I am going to talk about in my, my discussion tomorrow, and that is this notion that if we do isotopes or if we do DNA or if we do any of these techniques, you know, that suddenly that data has preference over all other data. That's believable. What you did over here that you spent 30 years doing, not believable, even though you use multiple lines of evidence. This little thing I did over here, that makes everything you did wrong. You know, so so what if in a mound we find that an individual wasn't born in that area? Does that really mean that everybody migrated there? Because that's what they're saying. I mean, that is what people are concluding. They're basing it because it takes a lot to do it. So they're basing it on a few skeletons. And it's like there are all kinds of problems with the technique itself, but I'm not even going there. I'm willing to say it's correct. Even if it is, okay, so a person came yeah. from somewhere else. And we've all been moving as long as humans have existed, or we wouldn't have populated the planet. We'd exactly. all be totally inbred. Exactly. We'd be like the British so, monarchy. So say, so say, you know, that's why it, it just drives me nuts. Yeah. Uh, it's like... And the propensity to migrate, personally, in my family, like, I need to be on the move at all times, and most of my family doesn't ever want to move. We're not a different culture. No. But I I can be found in a different place almost every month. And so yeah. if I wind up dying in Toronto, does that mean that I was this huge cultural inversion? Or was it just that I was somebody who was sent somewhere to go do something? And that's all. And and really, if you have, you know, from any, any of the big sites that we're talking about, we may have hundreds of skeletons. And they're looking at... Because that's all the money yes. they have, right? <laughs> or the samples are only good just, enough for those. Just, and the DNA stuff it has even worse problems because yeah. there's nothing to compare it to. Yeah, yeah that's the, the biggest challenge. I mean, I do isotope work, and that's where there's it's so important to have either a big enough sample size to make those presumptions, which is almost impossible. Um, even with enough money, just because the nature of the it's evidence. Hard. Yeah. yeah, and then just being able and I think it's important for archaeologists to really be willing and able to admit that they can't predict everything you can't make these broad sweeping claims about things um, or a whole population based off of four skeletons Um, one of my original um, master's theses um, that I was going to do and there were complications kind of going into it but um, was looking at uh, a monograph I had read in my undergrad, which I found fascinating. Visited the site, realized that there was so much more that could be learned. There was evidence there. The uh, type of uh, analysis that they had done had gotten cheaper. So you could then draw a larger sample and actually say something 
about it because the mm-hmm. what they had tried to say sounded it was very controversial to me, like very odd, and that it really needed to be tested further because that was a, it was like. Well, and I just I just really am uncomfortable with the primacy of it. That this is this takes precedence over everything else. Yeah, yeah. But our culture is doing that with the new Ancestry.com oh, yeah. commercials. That you take one sample and nobody's even really thinking about where does that data come from. So the interpretation for somebody just watching the commercial is that they actually think there's something in your DNA that somehow links to a country. And so when you're doing that with one sample and not thinking about it, and then an archeologist says, oh, I have this one skeleton and this proves something, those two things reinforce each other yeah, in do. popular culture. So if we want to critique Ancestry.com and things like that, we can't keep doing these studies on one skeleton and saying that, oh, this changes everything, and, and vice versa, right? Yeah. If we're going to critique the one, we have to critique the other. Exactly. And, and we've been critiquing identity as long as anthropology has existed, and, and clearly we're not getting anywhere if people think as soon as you send $100 away, you suddenly need to buy lederhosen. And, right and, and an Akama pot right because yes. suddenly you've discovered something that that That's was right. always there to, to start with so. well and not to mention even if that was accurate and it did actually pinpoint that you're only looking at say the mitochondrial DNA that is one branch know, of one tree of one side like 90% of all of it is not it's misleading and, and that it's, it's very misleading because I'm not even questioning the accuracy yeah it's accurate but it's based on a very small proportion, and also the the population. They don't have that much data on the population to really make it yes. that clear either. Right. If we took the DNA of everybody in Wisconsin and classified that as what Wisconsin is like, and then sampled <laughs> somebody in New York to find out if they were from Wisconsin, how come we don't do that? But we assume that that's accurate for Ireland and Scotland. Right. It's yeah. the same thing as... So how come Ancestry DNA never comes out with American? How come it never comes out with New Yorker? So there, there's like a theory underlying it that these other nations are identities. Yeah, and, and America and New York and Wisconsin are not identities. Yeah. And just that simple thing needs to be challenged yeah. at some yeah, point. Yeah, that's true. So identity, post-humanism, theory versus method, application of theory... These are all pretty juicy concepts that are fun to think about. I don't know about you, but I now have a growing reading list uh, that I need to work on this summer. So if you're interested in any of these topics or we're at TAG or just have something to say, feel free to contact us on Twitter at WomenArchies and on our website you can find links for our facebook page uh the twitter handle that i mentioned and our email address so don't be shy we love hearing from you and if you have any ideas for show topics that you'd like to hear or would love like to be a guest we'd love to have you thanks again for listening and we hope to hear from you again soon bye We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. 
or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomtep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.